UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. My name is Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. Now, what is evident uh, in the last few years working as a consultant is that no two patients, even if they have the same disease, behave the same in terms of how they present, um, how they progress through the disease process and the way they respond. And there are a lot of surprises and unexpected things that are thrown at us. And although pre- Predictability, uh, the routine, the mundane are important. It is probably the unexpected things that keep our professional lives very interesting. And, and, and this is one of the reasons we really enjoy what we do. And in this episode, we're going to discuss about these different scenarios. Some of these are unexpected, uh, some are unpredictable, and some that really impact our own personal personal lives. And being important, uh, being aware of these uh, scenarios is important and uh, we all should accept the unexpected. And, and this helps us and prepares us to manage the situations much more smoothly and avoids any mistakes and adds to our resilience and in our professional lives. Now, to to discuss this, uh, uh, today's guest is Dr. Charlie Murray. Uh, Charlie is a consultant gastroenterologist at uh, Royal Free Hospital in London and also the chair of gastroenterology at Cleveland Clinic in London. Charlie has also previously served as an educational committee chair at UEG in the past and is the director of e-learning task force at the UEG. Uh, Welcome to the UEG Talks, Charlie. Thank you, Pradeep. It's, been, it's a great pleasure to be here and, and really looking to discussing uh, these topics that you've just outlined. Um, thoroughly looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Uh, Charlie, firstly, can you tell me about your journey to this point? Um, I guess uh, probably with regards to your involvement with the UEG e-learning and as an educational committee chair, what, what inspired you? Uh, and these roles are very uh, are voluntary and often involve significant time and energy outside your own work and family commitments. Uh, and I've experienced this from um, my own role as a podcast host. It does take a lot of time, effort and energy. So what's inspiring about this role and how, how, how did you get to where you are now? So um, I've had quite a journey within voluntary roles within organisations, and it really started um, really early in my consultant career. So I um, approached the BSG because there'd been an advert, which is the British Society of Gastroenterology, sorry, for an advert for what was then the, the secretary or what was called the junior secretary and subsequently became a senior secretary position for the organisation, which up until that point had been something for a more experienced consultant. But actually, I'd bumped into Chris Hawkey, who's very well known to us all at UEG, um, who suggested that I apply and actually um, gave him some of my ideas about how the um, 
the organisation could improve and certainly with its uh, contact with our trainee members and uh, our younger gastroenterologists. And actually on the basis of that, got the job. Now, I guess in terms of my journey, that may may or may not have been a good thing to do within one or two years of becoming a consultant because it was somewhat overwhelming early on in my career to be organising the national meeting and to be dealing with gastroenterologists across the country. But it actually gave me huge opportunities in retrospect, uh, which come from putting a bit of extra uh, a bit of extra effort in and doing that voluntary work that you so rightly talk about. So because of that role in BSG, I subsequently was asked to go on what was then the General Assembly, now the meeting of members, and uh, be the UEG National Forum representative for the UK, which I enjoyed for a couple of years. And when I finished the BSG role, which was a four-year term, uh, I then saw this uh, role at the time, which was to chair the UEG e-learning task force. And I'd, I'd done a bit of this in the BSG already. I was very interested in education and technology um, and actually applied for that job with the UEG, having uh, not had a committee position with the UEG before and was successful in getting that. And that journey then developed. We developed through what was the online learning platform, Olga, initially. Uh, we then had very very few offerings on the site to begin with. We had a magnificent group of people uh, working on that, particularly with Gavin Johnson and Bjorn Renbacken, um, uh, again, both UK gastroenterologists, um, that then developed that further. And that really then developed even more when we, we looked at bringing that into the UEG Education Committee. And although I served um, for several more years just chairing the e-learning task force, I was then very lucky to be elected at the second time of trying, which is another thing we should talk about, which is resilience, the second time of applying for the UEG Education Chair, uh, Education Committee Chair, which really, apart from COVID getting right in the middle of it, which was rather annoying, has really been the experience of my career to date, working with really inspirational people and learning from everyone, uh, which brought me to the end of uh, this year. Now, running that concurrently, uh, with your daily life within clinical gastroenterology is challenging. You've alluded to that already. But that journey, that ability to be able to meet my peers within the field of gastroenterology from multiple different countries and multiple different cultures, from uh, multiple different points of view, has really rounded me as a gastroenterologist. And I would argue that the voluntary work is actually what has made me better at the job that I do and certainly better at the way that I uh, deal with patients. And what's inspiring about it, because I think that was your last question, was is uh, the people that I work with. So, and that doesn't just mean the doctors. We have lots of gastroenterologists in UEG, for example, and indeed the British Society of Gastroenterology. But it's all the people around that. It's the people I work with in the secretariat. It's the people who have knowledge bases that I have never and probably will never learn. Um, and the ability to assimilate all of these amazing skills and capabilities of other people is why voluntary work outside work, uh, I would thoroughly recommend to to everyone. Okay. Um, so I guess what you're trying to say is that you, you take on different roles, but don't overwhelm yourself. I guess you move on from one position to the other so that you fulfil those roles. So there's something in that sort, is there? Yeah, no, that there, there is, but I, but um, again, that there's always a concern that one gets onto you know a journey of moving from roles for the sake of just doing that. I think if you are going to move on a role within the society, if you are going to move on to a role that's voluntary, it has to be something that you're passionate about and that you believe in. 
and I think, and I'd like to think that whatever you, know, you bring your passion to, that you, you need to be looking to make a change and to uh, to give the best of yourself to that role. So it's important. It's important when you take these roles that that's at the back of your mind. Yeah, that's well said, Charlie. Uh, Charlie, moving on to sort of with our professional lives and when we are dealing with our patients, and we do tend to make varying impacts on different patients and. As professionals, we feel very good and validated when we make significant impact on our patients' lives, whether that is from the disease point of view or probably just being compassionate and empathetic. However, this is probably not the case in all scenarios. And I guess sometimes we feel very frustrated when we are unable to impact on the patient, on our patients, or improve their symptoms or change the course of the disease positively. So this, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say in a bad way, it, this doesn't mean that we should question our professional competence. It, it may be that in that scenario, we are probably not the right person for the patient to see. Maybe the patient needs a dietitian, or maybe uh, he or she needs a therapist, or maybe some change in their uh, social circumstances. Uh, and, and in my own practice, I probably feel that I make the biggest impact when I see patients, when I, when I remove early cancers and I see the, those patients in my clinic and I say, okay, you had a curative resection and potentially avoided a, uh, a big life-changing esophagectomy or, or gastrectomy. Uh, and that really validates me. We feel good about myself. Can, can you touch upon incidents or scenarios where you felt that it, you, you made some, some big impact on patients' lives or the disease status or quality of life, for example? I, I, I think I certainly can. I think we all can within medicine. So the first thing to say is that med, medicine is not straightforward. Gastroenterology and hepatology are not straightforward. And uh, one of the things when we present at meetings is that we're usually looking at a fairly reductive um, example of medicine. And by that, I mean... Of course, we do our clinical trials. We look at hard endpoints. Uh, they always look very rosy when things go well, but actually that doesn't really tell you about the patient at the end of that journey. And you give good examples of curative resections at endoscopy. And to a certain extent, that validates all of our practice because it means that our expertise has led to a very, if you like, a hard outcome, which is measurable, which is potentially life-changing. But actually, I, I would argue as well that that medicine for the majority of our practice is not that straightforward. There are no binary outcomes to, to the practice that we give. So I have a couple of threads within my clinical practice that um, I can talk to about that particularly and, and where I think you can make a difference, but sometimes they're not as tangible as, for example, removing a polyp. And one of them is that I, ha I have a big uh, inflammatory bowel disease practice, but one of my big clinics per week is an adolescent inflammatory bowel disease practice. And I think that you can make a huge difference to, to certainly younger patients in what is a very transitional stage in their life when everything in life is changing. Um, and we should, one should never forget that the majority of diseases outside, I guess, endoscopy and some of our interventional things are chronic, that we tend to look after people for long periods of time, um, that whether they, from the whole spectrum, from inflammatory gut diseases to um uh, liver disease to functional gastrointestinal disorders all of these things are things we'll, we'll see over a long period of time 
And you're dealing with so much more at that time than medical problems. You're dealing with the patient as a whole. And I think that where patients have made a difference to me is where certainly I'll give an example in adolescent IBD where our uh, what we bring to the table is our medical expertise and our assumptions about what patients are thinking. But those assumptions are often very wrong and we don't actually understand where people are coming from sometimes in clinic. And I often tell to the trainees, uh, a story which I think is memorable, but um, only because the communication wasn't particularly good of uh, 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 an example of someone who has changed my practice in the way that I'm now much more careful with language. And that was a 15-year-old patient with inflammatory bowel disease who had been uh, referred for a tertiary referral opinion from another hospital, uh, had been placed on infliximab for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and had been told very sternly by her uh, consultant that uh, she could not get pregnant on infliximab and those were the, the the words that were used were you cannot get pregnant on this drug now that's very sort of if you like patrician uh, uh, way of talking to a 15 year old that uh, and what he actually meant was you should not although one could argue that has nothing to do with the drug because you can safely get pregnant when you're on infliximab as I looked at the patient and she said this line repeatedly, I cannot get pregnant, it did make me ask the obvious question. You do realise that this drug is not a contraceptive, don't you? And of course, her face fell and a pregnancy test later, she was pregnant sitting in front of me in clinic um, and now comes with her babies to clinic. But she was only 15 at the time. A complete misunderstanding of language, of advice, of time with the patient. And actually really, really impacted on me, not because I had miscommunicated with her, but because I think the way we talk with our patients, whether it be chronic disease or otherwise, the way we communicate bad news, the way we um, communicate the nature of their disease and what will happen in the future has effects that sometimes we don't realise in medicine, that we have profound effects on people's lives on a daily basis. And if there's one lesson I would say from those experiences is that we do need to understand that, that those tiny touch points in hospital, those tiny episodes where you're seeing people for a few minutes at a time can have long-lasting and life-changing effects on people. And that may just be because you validate their concerns about their discomfort in their abdomen. It may be that you've cured them of cancer, but the spectrum uh, of diseases in some ways doesn't matter, but the communication of the impacts of them does. And I think we all need to remember that in medicine. Yeah, that's a, that's a moving story, Charlie. Now, sort of humility is very important for us, not just as human beings, uh, and especially more importantly in our caring profession. And I guess it's not, I'm not always talking about us doctors being empathetic and humble to our patients. Uh, it could be the other way around. Um, uh, as I said, these days, it's more of a partnership with our patients than uh, than us telling patients what, what should happen. Uh, and I... I remember a, a case of uh, where I was doing a polypectomy earlier, earlier on in my professional life, and uh, and there was a perforation, and the the patient was waiting for a, a surgery, and I went to see him on the surgical wards, and uh, I, I just would went to say, uh, I'm sorry that this happened, although we had discussed the risks of the uh, procedure with him prior to. I guess the patient could see it in my in my body language and my eyes that I was very upset. And instead of me 
reassuring the patient. It was him who said, Doc, you'll be fine. Don't worry, I'll be, I'll be fine. Uh, don't worry about this. These things happen. So it really was moving for me at that time. Uh, and I'm sure in your professional life, you would have come across some patients that really touched you as a person, been inspirational to yourself. Uh, can you give us some, your experience on this and sort of what has inspired you in the past? I think I certainly can. Um, and if you like advice for others about how you, you can use that in the future. So you'll be aware, certainly this is a UEG uh, podcast, that, of course, we developed the Mistakes In series. And and, and that was a, uh, some years ago with our, our friend Tom Adar. And um, the idea behind that was never to be uh, judgmental or, or pejorative to anyone in medicine. It was just the admission that we all make mistakes all of the time on a daily basis in medicine and actually that's how we learn and um we talk about trying not to make the same mistake twice but but often in different ways we we can do within medicine and, and it's a case of learning from those mistakes and moving on and having the humility to recognize that despite our expertise we can always learn something else especially from the patient and I think the humility comes in when one learns that you can always learn something from the patient that's in front of you, no matter how you go into that consultation or, or that um, procedure uh, beforehand, as you did with your patient, who obviously could understand that, that, that you know, you did feel bad about what had happened and you were worried and concerned. So I'd like to, to this question about humility with patients, I think I'd, I'd gain, give a slightly different end of the spectrum and talk about diseases of chronicity if you like and learning from patients and having humility and knowing that although you want to come to the table and we often do this and I'm very guilty of doing this for example I will see a complex patient coming towards me in clinic I will have assimilated all of the various investigations and tests which is of course what I should be doing I would have formulated a plan in my head almost before they've walked through the door and then felt very pleased with myself that um that I can announce this grand plan to the patient that's come in and that we'll have a very nice rounded uh, uh, consultation that will end, end up with a plan, which I've essentially already decided before the patient has entered the room. But that's not how life works. It's good to have that framework, to, to, to work within guidelines, to work uh, appropriately, to use your clinical expertise to make decisions. But I think uh, I'd give the example of uh, a role I have in the UK here, which is as the lead for the GI scleroderma study group. So scleroderma is obviously a relatively rare rheumatological condition. Um, and there are about 8,000 patients in the UK, but about 2,000 come to my uh, to my hospital. So uh, almost by fluke, I've managed to become quite uh, used to seeing those patients and seeing patients from all over the country with that condition. And as you'll know, as gastroenterologists, those that you, of you that deal with it, that is not um, an easy group of gastrointestinal symptoms and pathology to deal with. Uh, and mostly because most of the problems that people present with are irreversible. And all one can do really is explain the disease and treat the symptoms. And I think I've learned a lot of humility from that group of patients. When you have a group of patients that have a disease that is essentially from the gut point of view at least irreversible that won't necessarily get better uh, but then look thankfully to you as a physician for taking the time to explain what's going on to let them know what is and isn't possible and to let them know that you are there to support them through that journey I think that gives 
you as a, one as a physician, great humility in, in how we deal with our patients um, and how much you learn from them, because uh, most of us are lucky enough not to be carrying chronic diseases that rule out everyday life or bowel problems that stop us leaving the house on a daily basis or awful upper gastrointestinal symptoms, which mean we can't swallow. We're lucky enough not to have those problems. But listening to those patients day in, day out makes us realise that, yes, we are so lucky to be able to uh, work within our field. Um, but we also need to understand the limitations of what we can do and how much uh, we can learn from our patients. That's well said, Charlie. I think, you know, being honest on what you can and cannot do for the patients is probably what they expect and they, they feel fulfilled after the, after the consultation. Moving on to sort of more sort of work-related things. And uh, as gastroenterologists, we are very driven and we always want to achieve more and more professionally. Some of us never seem to know when to stop or when to slow down. And as a profession, uh, due to this, we experience burnout very significantly. And I'm not too sure whether you've heard of Bronnie Ware. Um, She was an Australian caregiver and... In her memoir, she recounts her last her years of caregiving to the people who are dying in palliative care. And in her memoir, she lists the top five regrets of the dying. And in one of them, or on one of those five regrets is, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. If we are willing to learn from these uh, from these people who walk their final steps on this earth and uh, they have been transparent about their regrets, there's a lot to learn from this. And maybe we can take some of these uh, these to our own lives before we reach that state. Do you have any advice to our younger colleagues starting the career on this aspect of burnout and professional life? Yeah, no, I, I certainly do. And it's something I've thought about uh, for a few personal reasons uh, with colleagues recently, actually, a, a, um, a great deal. So I often use the analogy uh, when talking with colleagues and, and trainees about, you know, our careers being like a fast train. So uh, and certainly with the National Health Service in the UK is like a fast train. You're on the fast train. You are going at it at work as much as you can. You're working hard. You're spending hours and hours of, of work but the sad thing is and I know this from experience that if for, for whatever reason whether it be illness death retirement people move off that train that train just keeps moving on it just keeps moving and within days weeks sometimes hours uh, if you like what we think will be our legacy is lost the next group of trainees don't remember you as a consultant gastroenterologist you know, the next group of um, registrars of trainees that come through the Royal Free are not going to know who Dr. Murray was if I happen to retire from that post or if I leave. And actually, there's a great deal to be said for working hard and diligently and doing your best. And the reasons we do that is because it benefits the patients and they should be front and centre of everything we do. It benefits us personally because it, we develop on a personal basis If you enjoy work and you want to work hard as a young trainee, you absolutely should do because you will you will get lots of enjoyment and fulfillment from that. But one should never be striving for legacy. So legacy within medicine is not not something that is real, particularly Um, if you think you've done a good job, 
your legacy will will be there, but it will be in the few people that you've touched or the many people that you've touched in your life. It will be in the way that the patients remember how you help them. It will be in the way that your trainees um, remember you as someone that had their back, if you like, that looked after them in their training that helped them develop. Those are the legacies that we should aim for, but aiming for fame, aiming for just one more publication when we've missed the umpteenth weekend with our family, staying in and doing extra lab work, which doesn't really come to much and realising that our kids haven't seen us at any of their school plays. That's not something anyone should be aiming for. So there is a balance there. And I absolutely agree with working hard and striving to be better. But we do need to keep a balance. And without that balance, um, things go wrong pretty quickly later in your career when you realise actually, as your um, Bronnie Ware that you quoted uh, said that, that getting to the end of a career or or getting to the end of one's life and realising that we should have maybe have concentrated our, ourselves elsewhere is not not something we need or want to be doing. Yeah, I guess the only person that we need to please is ourselves or maybe our loved ones who are close to uh, a legacy that we leave is for ourselves probably. In our professional lives, Charlie, we, we come across numerous uh, decision-making crossroads Decisions that we make, of course, in, in conjunction with our patients, hugely impact the outcome. And of course, when we make these decisions, we always have the best interests of our patients in mind. And uh, the, the problem with us is that we seem to always have a tendency to look at the outcomes and tend to go back to the crossroads and being very self-critical about the decisions that we made. Especially, you know, obviously, this is when when the outcome is uh, negative. And this, unfortunately, has significant impact on our stress levels and leads to burnout. Any advice on how to best manage such situations from your experience? Yeah, so I, I think I think surgeons are much better than dealing with this than gastroenterologists are particularly. I mean, that they're used to things going wrong because there are complications with every any procedure. And perhaps in your life, Freddie, you're more used to this as being an interventional endoscopist. But but actually, we need to frame everything we do in medicine and in life really on bringing out you know our best selves to the table and and doing things in a very um, structured and multidisciplinary way and. You know, episodes where things have gone wrong, I can tell you in my particular career, times things tend to go wrong in one's career are when usually when you try and go outside your normal working pattern in order to what you think is to help the patient. That might be running a list in endoscopy late because you just want to squeeze in the patient because you don't want them to have to come back the next day. Um, it's rushing an admission because it's, it works with some with a patient's um schedule better because they have family waiting for them at home these are episodes where things do go wrong we need to reflect on that and just realize that we should always do things in a, in a more structured way and they do when things go wrong have significant effects on the on our stress in the workplace and of course uh, and burnout as well and my advice would be that uh, at the times like that is to take a breath to realize that things do go wrong for everyone and that retrospective look at cases when they go wrong should never be uh, critical to the extent that we are um, blaming each other or being pejorative about others' practice or our own. It should be a learning experience. And actually, again, it sounds like I'm on a constant advertisement for UEG here, but um, that's where the mistakes in um, articles and talks came from. 
because actually if we work in a multidisciplinary team and we continually learn from each other and we make decisions together with discussion and that's often when things go wrong when we don't discuss things widely that's when multiple com complications occur uh, and that's where uh, in retrospect one could be said to be making mistakes the important things to learn from them and Charlie moving on to sort of communication and it's it's one of the prerequisites for us as doctors and gastroenterologists yet this skill varies significantly between us. Um, and I'm not trying to sort of put a blame on anything, but the issues could be due to language, culture, uh, personality, or sometimes some people being just lazy and not being diligent. Um, and I guess one of the biggest factors that lead to complaints is communication issues. Uh, and I've known it from my past few years as a consultant. Uh, can you give us some examples of negative or positive outcomes due to sort of communication issues and any tips on how we can improve this? So the first tip, because I always think it on an almost daily basis. So endoscopy is a good example of this in gastroenterology. So um, in the UK, and I'm sure elsewhere, it would be standard to try and even in a busy clinic, it would be standard to try and talk to all patients after they've had their procedure, albeit very briefly, if you have a busy list. Um, sometimes that's not possible because you're stuck in one procedure after a very short, simple procedure just before. But that is always, that lack of communication is always when the complaints come and when there are problems. And one bit of advice I would give about communication generally is if there's even a suspicion in one's mind that talking with a patient will make things better and that although it might be a few minutes out of your time that you don't think you should give, actually going and having that conversation will reap benefits for you and the patient in the long term. And good examples of that happen daily. So if you had a slightly uncomfortable procedure with a patient, you didn't get time to see them, they went home, that patient may complain, you talk to them after the procedure, you you'd make them understand what the difficulties were, how it went, apologise if there's any discomfort, changes their experience entirely and stops all of that downstream uh, problems that you may have developed in the future. I'd argue it happens almost daily, not that things go wrong, but if you have a feeling in the back of your mind that you should have the conversation, then you should be having it. So that's one bit of advice. The other thing is that, and you, you absolutely uh, got this right, Paddy, that language, culture, the way we talk to people is so important. And actually, I can give you know horrendous uh, um, early career examples of uh, miscommunications that have led to wrong surgery or miscommunications in multidisciplinary teams, certainly in the in the inflammatory bowel disease uh, setting where, for example, a pan-proctocolectomy has been performed when a subtotal colectomy should have been, so that patient can never be reversed. These things should not happen. They're obviously very serious incidents and are treated as such. But actually, when you go back through the root cause analysis of these situations, the problem is always communication. It's language, it's time, it's, it's having the diligence to go through things carefully and talk about what the outcome should be. So um, my one tip would be, and I think I've said it already, but in summary, on a daily basis, almost minute by minute actually throughout your practice, one should always be reflecting on how you have communicated processes and outcomes with patients to make sure that you're happy in your mind that both you and they understand what the, the end uh, journey will be. 
Yeah, I, I guess to to be diligent and that takes extra effort to communicate more effectively or write that extra lines in your report and all that. So uh, I think we all should be very wary of that. And that small amount of extra effort probably goes a long way in making impact positively in every every sense, I guess. Charlie, any any examples or cases where you come across where a right or wrong decision making led to a significantly life-changing outcome for a patient? Sure. I mean, I think there are multiple, as we've alluded to already in this discussion, so many examples in, in medicine where one could argue there is no right, one right or wrong answer. And, all, and, and the ones we consider to have been wrong decisions are usually the ones in which complications or, if you like, um, downstream disasters have occurred. So, I can think of uh, inflammatory bowel disease is becoming increasingly busy. The interface between medicine and surgery is increasingly busy. Uh, the discussions between tertiary, secondary and primary care uh, are increasingly busy. And actually, I think we forget in tertiary referral institutions that, of course, we need to remember that not everyone manages very sick patients very often with certain conditions. And that could be early stage cancers where you're looking endoscopically at patients and wondering why they had the big disastrous complicated operation they had when you could have treated them endoscopically, for example. Um, but in my certain my practice, uh, a good example would be the pregnant woman with acute severe colitis who has been really undertreated elsewhere because the clinicians aren't used to dealing with that condition, are scared about using, for example, biologics in in a pregnant woman and haven't asked for that haven't asked for help early enough in order to make some decisions that that we would have made very quickly elsewhere and for example I can think of one patient where uh, we had an unnecessary colectomy well pr- probably unnecessary colectomy within pregnancy which actually coming to us very late and not having had the appropriate treatment elsewhere but again learning experience from that is the main thing is in medicine Ultimately, when medicine becomes complicated, is it's all about expert opinion, isn't it? It's all about what's right for the patient, what the right thing to do. And that comes back to what we've discussed already. You should always, within your institution, be looking to have multidisciplinary discussions. You should always be looking for other opinions. You should always have the humility to realise that your opinion is not the only one and necessarily the only right one. And that if at any point in your career, and I mean this on a daily basis, if at any point you feel that you're at the point where you are not sure about your decision making, you should always ask the opinion of your peers. It's never unhelpful uh, and can often be transformative. And when I think through my career, the times when anxiety and stress about decision making have been completely relieved, it's been when I thought I was being stupid to ask for help. But actually the discussion, albeit a corridor discussion, uh, has made me feel better about what I'm doing and ultimately has been much better for the patient outcome. So always talk, always have the humility to discuss and always ask when you don't know whether the right thing is being done. Well, that's well said, Charlie. You were talking about multidisciplinary team, so how you need to ask for help, and especially in your, your practice with sort of complex IBD patients. They're managed by different individuals at different hospitals sometimes and different teams. And often when the patients are managed as such, the defining responsibilities from each team is important, not only for 
effectiveness, but also to avoid any duplication. And, and, and defining these roles is sometimes blurred and maybe sometimes assumed, probably leading on to some errors in the patient management. And I guess communication is the key, what you said. Um, are there any, any particular ways that you would deal in such complex situations? How, you know, what, what are the main things that are important to make sure this is done effectively between the team's management of such patients? So, yeah, I, I think this has become more problematic, actually, as we've changed the way we practice healthcare with the, to some extent, I mean, the, using my own experience uh, in the UK, we've had a degree of erosion of the team structure of the way that we work. And that's necessary to a certain extent because we've had to cut down on hours and, and get rotors in place. But what that leads to is uh, that certainly some of the trainees will feel that they're never really working with the same um uh, team on a daily basis or certainly on a monthly or six monthly basis which leads to handovers now handovers in medicine are when everything goes wrong so um, what would I do to improve that I think we need to always be aware that our responsibility for certainly for inpatient care does not stop the, the, the as soon as we leave the hospital and that the only way of um, ensuring good patient care is to ensure that communication is in place now, that may be electronic communication on an electronic patient record. It may be verbal between patients. It may be in a handover meeting. But whatever that process is in your institution, it has to be based on good communication and planned processes and outcomes for that ensuing period once you have handed over. And by that, I mean giving a patient list to another doctor and saying these are our patients, good luck for the weekend is not a handover. Good, solid plans, discharge planning, jobs for the weekend, things that can be understood uh, and the reasons for them, like why are we doing these things? Why are we checking these blood tests? Why are we doing these scans? Are all important in communication. So dealing with this situation should be straightforward. And I think when we uh, we all work together on a daily basis in the same teams, it is. But the complexity and busyness of, of healthcare today means that we need to get those handovers right and it is possible, but we do need to concentrate on it on a daily basis, I think. Hmm. So, uh, Charlie, over the last sort of half an hour, we've discussed various um, things when it comes to team working, communication, uh, empathy, humility. Um, before we conclude, are there any final piece of advice or closing remarks to our listeners? Yeah, I think I'd just like to summarise on, on some of the points that we've made already. You know, medicine, gastroenterology, hepatology are great careers. They inspire us every day. They're interesting because the same, you never have the same day twice. So that's, that's one thing to say. So never think that working hard within those specialities in a way that you enjoy them will not reap benefits. Some of those benefits aren't tangible. Uh, but they will reap benefits because you'll become a better person for them. And as we learn from our patients in that hard work, we become better doctors as well. That's the first point, if you like. The second thing is never be, and because we've talked about it, never be afraid to take opportunities in life. So everything that I've done actually, in retrospect, has been unexpected in terms of voluntary work. So I did not expect to apply early in my career to the British Science of Gastroenterology committees but I did and I did because someone asked me and I took the opportunity and it reaped benefits. Similarly I didn't think I'd be leading a UEG learning term uh, team for multiple years 
having just read a read a um an advert in ueg on the website and then spoken to a few people but having gone into that position and met some of the best people i've ever worked with in gastroenterology and some of my best friends for life through doing that and if there were one thing that i would say just in summary therefore it's always look to take the opportunity okay you will know when the opportunity is right and you will never regret benefiting from the experience of others Charlie, that was uh, so inspiring for me. And thank you so much for um, sharing your experience and your perspective uh, of varying roles that you've had. Uh, I do hope our listeners too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bradley.